Good morning to all of our visitors. Glad to have you guys with us this morning, and happy Mother's Day to everyone. Um, you know, I remember I was thinking about this this week uh, as I was coming up on Mother's Day and preparing for uh, this week's message, and uh, I remember a conversation that I had with some folks at one of the churches that, that we used to be a part of, uh, Margaret and I, and uh, we, we were eating dinner with this couple. It was some kind of youth fundraiser deal, and, and uh, it was an older couple in the church. We really didn't know them real well, but uh, they had come out to support the teenagers, and I was youth pastor at that church. And, uh, and so we were just having a conversation and getting to know them and finding out about their families. And, and uh, I remember that uh, this woman was sharing about uh, their, their children and, and sharing in particular uh, about uh, one, of, one of their, uh, their children and, and uh, him and his wife and, and their daughters. And they said, you know, we, we asked our granddaughters, what do you, what do you want to do? when you grow up? And uh, do you want to go to college? What do you want to do? And, and these little girls said, no, I don't, I don't really care to go to college, and I just, want to be, I just want to be a wife and a mommy. I just want to be a wife and a mommy. And this, this grandmother, as she was telling me this story, like, you would have thought, she said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And her granddaughters would have responded by saying, I want to have a frontal lobotomy, live a life of servitude, and have zero worth, dignity, or value. I mean, that's the way the grandmother responded uh, as she was telling me the story about what her granddaughter said. I don't really care about going to college. I don't, I don't want to do anything. Uh, I just want to be a wife and a mommy. And, and this grandmother was, was telling me this like I was supposed to be like... <gasps> You mean they said there's no God? Like, like I was just supposed to be deeply shocked. And, and you know, really, uh, I was kind of surprised, but I shouldn't be surprised because the common perception, it seems like, in our culture is that, is that marriage and motherhood are just options for, for people to add to their lives, for women in particular, to add to their lives. Uh, it's kind of like I'm going to buy a car, and I say, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll go ahead and take this package with the leather seating and, uh, and the CD changer. And they act as though that's how some women uh, should, that's how women should see marriage and motherhood. Like, well, I, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and I'll go ahead and, and tack on marriage and motherhood. I'll take those options too. I want, I want the full package. And they, and they act like, like it's just an option, like it's just an additive. Uh, and this is definitely at odds with God's way of thinking as revealed in Scripture. We see that God's way of thinking as revealed in Scripture shows that marriage and motherhood is not, are not just additives. They're not just options to the package of life, but that motherhood is actually God's calling for women. It is actually God's call for the godly woman. And we're going to look at that today. We're going to see in God's word that motherhood and marriage are God's calling for women. We're going to jump into the scriptures and we're going to see this. And there's a couple reasons why we'll see this. The first thing that we'll see why motherhood is God's calling for women is that motherhood is rooted in God's created order. Motherhood is rooted in God's created order. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told about God's design when he made all things. And jumping in at verse 26, it says, Then God said, this is after God had created uh, the universe, after God had created uh, the heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars. Verse 28, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So first thing that we see is that God created man and woman in his image. He created them to be his representative rulers over the earth to have dominion over the earth, to take care of the earth as managers, as stewards of God's creation. He made man and woman both 
in his image. And so man and woman are both, men and women, male and female, have equal value before God as God's image bearers. Man is not superior to woman. Woman is not superior to man. Before God, they bear equal value as beings made in his image. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we see a little bit more detail about God's creation account. And we're told that there was actually a span of time. There was actually a gap in between God's creation of man in his image and God's creation of woman in his image. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Then verse 22, uh, we find out that God had caused man to fall into a deep sleep. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So even though they are both created uh, as equals made in the image of God, we're told that man was created first, And that woman was created for man. Uh, She was created to complement man. She was made to be a helper for man, to be a companion for man. And man acknowledged that. And we're told that this is the reason right there in creation that God made man, uh, woman from man and made woman for man. That's the reason even today that people are married because it was God's design at creation. Now let's jump back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, this man and this woman, who are equal before God as his image bearers. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God said, I've made you to care for my creation. I've made you both in my image. You are both of equal worth and value for me. I've made you woman for man. I've made you to have companionship. And now I want you to be fruitful and to multiply. Multiply. I want you to enjoy your relationship, your intimacy together. And I want you to make lots of babies. And I want you to take care of the earth at the same time. And, uh, and this is God's design. This is the way God created it to be. And we get further insight into the fact that this is God's design for men and women, marriage and family, by looking at chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall. We read about how uh, Satan, in the form of a serpent, deceived the woman, that he enticed her to desire something which was outside of God's plan for her, and actually... Uh, encouraged the woman and the man to desire to be free of God's uh, place in their lives, to be not only equal with God, but to be freed from God's authority in their lives. And we're told that they sinned against God and that sin entered into the world. And at that moment, they experienced physical or spiritual death and they began to experience, uh, sorry, they experienced spiritual death and they began to experience physical death. Their body began the process of dying and then along with the presence of sin and how that affected their soul and how it affected their body, we're also told that it affected creation around them and it affected their relationship with one another. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God's telling them the effects, the consequences of their sin. And he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then down to verse 20. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, the, the verse that we didn't read is what God told the man. God told the man that uh, from the sweat of your brow that you will work to get the food from the land. Now, what we see in Genesis 3 is something that is particular to the way that God designed men 
and the purpose for which God designed men and the roles that they play and the way that God designed women and the purpose for which he designed them and the roles that they play. We see that the man is going to work for his food by the sweat of his brow. And some people say, see, work is a consequence of the fall. But that's not the case because in the beginning when everything was perfect, God told the man to work. He told the man to take care of his creation, to name all of the animals. So work is not a consequence of the fall. Frustration and toil, having to work and sweat and work hard just to get something accomplished, futility in work, that is the consequence of the fall. But man was made to work and to be a provider, and that's the way God designed man. And then God told the woman, you will experience pain. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. Having children, making babies, is not the effect of the fall, but pain that is experienced in that, that's the consequence of the fall. And why is that, why is that uh, noteworthy? Because God designed a woman to be a mother, and he designed her to be a wife. We know that because it says that your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, that's kind of an odd phrase, but it doesn't mean that you'll want your husband. You'll want to be around him. You'll enjoy spending time with him. It means you'll want to rule over your husband. You'll want to have authority over your husband. And that is sinful, to want to be the dominant one. And he also will be sinful, and he will rule over you. Instead of being the loving, caring, providing husband that he should be, he will often respond harshly and rule over you harshly. Doesn't mean that either one is okay. Doesn't mean that we accept either one and say, well, that's just the way it is. But we see that God created things good, he created man to be a provider. He created men and women to be husband and wife. He created women to be mothers. And that with the introduction of sin into their lives and in the world around them, even his good design is frustrated and now has to bear with negative consequences. But we can see clearly in the scriptures that God's design in the beginning, his created order, is for men and women to be husband and wife, and for wives to be mothers. It is rooted in God's created order. The second reason we see that motherhood is God's calling for women is that marriage and motherhood are good for both our godliness and God's glory. Marriage and motherhood are good for our godliness and for God's glory. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy, a young pastor, uh, over a church about how they should care for some women in the church, some older women uh, whose husbands are dead and who have no family members to provide for them. And they are basically destitute if the church does not come to their aid. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 5, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, meaning having been faithful to her husband, and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And so basically he says, if a woman is in the church, she's a believer. Her husband's deceased, and she has no family, and she will be destitute if the church does not come to her aid. Enroll her if she was faithful to her husband, she was a godly wife and mother, and she lived a life that bore much fruit. She lived a life exemplary of a godly woman. We want to highlight that, and we want to reward it by taking care of this woman so that her good deeds will not go uh, unrewarded. And then, verse 11, he says, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ... They desire to be married and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Former faith. He's not saying it's wrong for them to get married, but he's saying that because of sexual desires and because of their desire for companionship and other desires, which in and of themselves are not bad things, they could be lured away to marry a non-believer. And the reason it's a non-believer is because if they're enrolled by the care of the church, then the men in the church will know, hey, these are widows in the care of the church. We're... We're not trying to hit on these ladies. 
So the men in the church will not be pursuing these women, but men outside of the church likely will. And so Paul says, don't enroll the younger women because if they change their mind, they might fall away from the faith in Christ because they might marry an unbeliever, someone from outside the church who notices that she's hot to trot. And then, verse 13, besides that, as if that wasn't a good enough reason, they learn to be idlers. These are, these are young women. They've got a, still got a lot of vigor. They learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So we don't want to enroll these younger women who have a lot of life ahead of them just to the, the devotion to the church. We, we want them uh, to be busy so that they're not being drawn away into sin. And so how should a younger woman be encouraged in godliness? What does Paul commend? Paul says, verse 14, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So basically Paul's saying, Here's how we're going to encourage them to grow in godliness, and here's how we're going to prevent Satan from having an opportunity uh, to stir up people to, to speak ill about their lives. How do we encourage them to live an exemplary, godly life? Marry, have children, manage their households, be a godly wife, give the enemy no occasion for slander. So it's good for their godliness, and it's also good for God's glory because it robs Satan the opportunity to speak ill of the work of Christ and the people of God. Titus chapter 2, Paul again says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul's saying the elderly women in the church shouldn't just sit around and get drunk. They shouldn't be slaves to much wine, okay? They should be doing something. And what should they do? They should mentor younger women. They should teach younger women how to be godly. And what do they teach them? How do they mentor? What do they train them in? They train them in loving their husbands and their children, being self-controlled and pure, working at home, being kind, being submissive to their own husband. How do they train them in godliness? They train them to be a godly wife, a godly mother, a godly caregiver. And we're told, as a result, the word of God may not be reviled. When, when these women, these young widows, these young women, when they learn to grow in godliness, through marriage, through motherhood, through taking care of their household. We're told that God gets the glory. It's a good witness. The word of God is not reviled. It's strengthened. Satan doesn't have an opportunity to bring accusation. God's glory is on display when these women are faithfully living according to God's design. And then in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul again says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, verse 15, here's, here's the real focal point of this. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Arguably one of the most bizarre verses in the New Testament. Paul makes a case for women not being in positions of spiritual authority, and he points out to the fact that, that Eve was deceived. Adam sinned willingly. Adam knew the command of God and willingly disobeyed the command of God. God gave Adam the command. Adam was supposed to instruct his wife. Eve was deceived, and we're told that Adam stood by idly instead of exerting uh, encouragement and teaching as a spiritual leader over his home. Adam stood by idly and let his woman be deceived by the enemy. And so Paul makes the point that women should not be in positions of pastors, elders, spiritual authority. doesn't mean a woman can't teach in other settings, but Paul's making this point. And then to connect the dots between Eve's sin and deception, he gives us this in verse 15. 
yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, there's couple parts of this that are just ridiculous interpretations. The one interpretation is, have babies and you'll go to heaven. That is heresy. That is just heresy. And some religions teach, have lots of babies and you'll have your own planet and all your babies will be with you. That's heresy as well. Any religion that teaches either one of those is probably heresy. So, just be on guard. So that's a terrible interpretation. Another interpretation would be, be a Christian and... uh, Pregnancy and labor will go well. Look at history. We thank God for medical knowledge. But look at history. Even as, as you know, short as maybe 60, 70 years ago, uh, a lot of women still died during childbirth. A lot of Christian women. A lot of women who still really love the Lord experienced complications and, and died in childbirth. So anyone who says... Have babies, be a Christian, and it'll, be go, it'll go well. That's a terrible interpretation. What it actually means, that word save there, would be better interpreted sanctified. Sanctification is the process by which we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. Only Jesus saves us. And that's a work of grace, and it's all by grace, and there's nothing that we can do to add to that sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus in our daily life, that's a work of the Holy Spirit that we cooperate with. And so basically Paul's saying, even though it was through Eve that she was deceived and, and, uh, and sin entered and then Adam let it go by, even though Eve was deceived, the daughters of Eve, women, they can live spiritual lives and they can become like Jesus and they will continue to be more like Jesus as they carry out God's design. Being married and having kids opens up manifold opportunities for tension, for frustration, for sin, for selfishness, for bitterness. You have two independent people who each have their own plan that are now supposed to work together as a team for a common goal. There are many opportunities for sin in that setting. Then throw in other independent persons who also have their own plans in the form of toddlers and 5-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 16-year-olds and see if there are not more opportunities for sin. And the answer is there are abundant opportunities to be sinful. And so Paul is saying, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control through marriage and motherhood, they will definitely have opportunities to grow in godliness. And so we see it as for our godliness and God's glory. Now, now let me say something. If there be any single guys in here, uh, or even married guys, help a woman to do this. Help a woman to be able to do this. Marriage and motherhood are not real options for some women because of time constraints, because of financial constraints. A lot of guys just live in an extended adolescence into their 30s and 40s. Don't be a selfish kid. Be a man. Act like a man. Get serious about marriage and family. Don't just wait till you've had all the fun in life. And then get a job. You don't got to be rich, but you got to get paid. Get a job. Work hard. Be wise about the way that you use money. Don't get into lots of debt. Don't buy stuff that you can't pay cash for. Learn how to budget. Learn how to save. Get an emergency fund. Maybe save for a down payment on a house. Maybe save for a ring. And make good decisions and work hard so that you can propose, that you can have a wife, and when she gets pregnant, Lord willing, and decides, I want to be mom, she doesn't have to go to work because you haven't made good decisions up front. Help a woman be able to be a wife and a mother and to pursue God's design in those areas. Now, let me also give one exception. Not all women will be called to marriage or motherhood. Not all women will. And if we say that, we're just not being fair, we're not being truthful, we're not being honest. Not all women will be called to marriage and motherhood. But most will, even the majority. The majority will, but not all. And Matthew 19, Jesus has just got done talking to his disciples about divorce. 
He says that divorce is not God's design. Marriage is God's design. And so marriage is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman and their commitment to God to stay married. And that the only exception and the only allowable reason for them to separate is for sexual immorality. Otherwise, it's a sin. It's a sin that can be forgiven. There's no sin that can't come under the blood of Jesus Christ, but it is a sin. And so people should not enter into marriage lightly or rashly because it's a, mar- it's a decision for life. And the disciples hear this, and verse 10, they say to him, if such is the case, if we can't just get divorced because we don't like her anymore, then it is better not to marry. If I'm stuck with her for life, then it's better to be single than to than to be in a miserable relationship because I was foolish. Verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. So he's like, you guys are catching on. But not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Here's John Calvin's commentary on this passage. Calvin says, Christ distinguishes between three kinds of eunuchs. Uh, a, a eunuch is, is, is someone who no longer has reproductive cap- capabilities. Uh, Calvin says, there are those who are so by nature, or who, uh, so those would be uh, individuals who may be uh, because of uh, their mental capacity, because of physical disabilities, whatever, uh, they're mentally or, or uh, physically handicapped, and, and it's just not a real possibility. Uh, some Bible commentators would even leave room. They said it would be consistent with ancient biblical literature or histor- you know, uh, literature from around that time. It would even be consistent to add homosexuals into this category. People who say, I'm born with a, with a I, I just feel like I've been born with a, strong same-sex attraction. I don't want to give in to this, but what should I do? Uh, it was not uncommon for homosexual men to be referred to as eunuchs in the first century. And so Jesus' Jesus's teaching would even apply to them. You're a eunuch. You're not married. And you're celibate. Uh, so there's some who are that way by nature. Then there are some who have been castrated by men for service and are debarred from marriage by this defect. He says, Jesus says, there are other eunuchs who have, been, who have castrated themselves, maybe not physically, but just by devotion. They have castrated themselves that they may be more at liberty to serve God. And these he exempts from the obligation to marry. Hence it follows that all others who avoid marriage fight against God with sacrilegious hardihood. For Christ has already declared that God gives it to whom he chooses. And a little afterwards, we find him maintaining that it is folly in any man to choose to live unmarried when he has not received this special gift. So Jesus says that singleness is a calling, that not many are able to receive the call to live a life of singleness, except for those who are actually called to be single. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger, a professor at Southeastern Seminary in, I believe it's North Carolina, says, except for those who are called by God to a life of singleness, God's ideal is that of a monogamous, lifelong marriage crowned with the gift of children. Now, let me highlight something. Singleness is for service, not for selfishness. Singleness is not I don't really want to share my life with someone, and I don't really want to have kids, and I don't really want anyone to tell me what to do with my money or where to live or what to do, period. I like doing my own thing, spending money however I want, going wherever I want, whenever I want. I just like that. That's selfishness. And if you're a believer, you're not to be focused only on self. Instead, if you're a believer and you're single, your devotion is to be to the Lord. I won't read all of it, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is giving some teaching for singles and married people, and he basically says, if you're single, then you can just focus on how to please the Lord. But if you're married, then you have to focus on how to please your spouse. And so if you don't feel called to be married, it's really better for you to be single. Why? So you can do whatever you want with your money and go wherever you want and no one tells you what to do? No. 
so that you can serve the Lord completely. So whatever amount of attention, focus, and devotion that you would give towards pleasing your family, your spouse, and taking care of your family, now you have that freedom to do it to your Christian family, the body of Christ at large, and to serve the Lord and to be on mission and to reach unbelievers with the gospel. So singleness is for service, not for selfishness. All others, uh, by God's design, are called to marriage. Third reason why God, motherhood is God's calling for women is motherhood is a gift from the Lord. In Psalm 127, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And then in Psalm 139, which we read earlier, we see that God is involved in, in every pregnancy. God is involved of the, the creation of a child in the womb. It is not merely a physical process that happens independently of God, but God's hand is intricately at work in the conception and the formation of every human life. And so we see that children are a gift from the Lord. They're not an accident. They're not an inconvenience. Children, uh, conceiving children is not something uh, that, that can just be done on a whim. For some it might seem like that, but others have tried very, very, very hard and been frustrated that there seems to be no fruitfulness in that area. And we have to say that Conception and life and birth are all good and gracious gifts of a sovereign God to His creation. It does not happen independently of God. We don't know why it happens in some cases and not in others. We know that God opens the womb and God closes the womb. We know that God is intricately involved in the formation of even the the beginning stages and all throughout of human life. And so motherhood is a gift. It's an expression of God's kindness towards his general creation. And so another reason why it's a calling is if the Lord should gift you, then it does mean the Lord has chosen you to have that experience. And that is a blessing. That is a blessing. Now, lest anyone be confused, when we're talking about motherhood, ultimately, we're, what we're talking about here is about more than just baby making. When we're talking about God's call to motherhood, we're talking about more than just baby making. Because even a 13-year-old girl can make a have a baby. And that doesn't make her any more of a godly woman, a biblical woman, than wearing a dress and carrying a Bible would make me one. What we're talking about in God's calling to womanhood, to motherhood, to biblical femininity is something much larger. And Carrying on what we see related to biblical womanhood, biblical femininity, and biblical motherhood is that motherhood is for caring and nurturing. Motherhood is for caring and nurturing. Motherhood is God's calling for women because motherhood is for caring and nurturing. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus is looking down over the city of Jerusalem just days before his crucifixion, just days before he's about to die on the cross, and he looks over the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish people, God's chosen people of the Old Testament, whom he revealed himself to, to take his truth to all the people of the world, who are now living in rejection of God. Jesus says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Jesus points to his willingness as God to gather her children as true worshipers, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, if they would but repent and turn to God. And he condescends to the point of comparing himself not just with a natural mother, but comparing himself with the maternal instincts of an animal, showing that even the maternal instinct of an animal is there given by God, designed to care and nurture her young. And Jesus says in the same way that a chicken would gather her young and shelter them with her wings from a storm or from an assailant, God would have gathered you from sin and from the devil 
and protected you as worshipers in him. And Jesus is highlighting that maternal instinct and that care. And, and men are not generally given to that, that type of care, predisposed to that. Now, that's not to say that God's a woman or anything crazy like that, but God is, is highlighting that design that he has by nature given to the hen and also given to the woman who's made in the image of God, to care, to nurture. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is talking to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Paul says, even in the way that we dealt with you as spiritual leaders, we tried to be gentle with you, not harsh, not, not domineering. We tried to deal gently with you, even as a what? As a mother. God has wired women. He has wired mothers to have a sense of, of care and nurturing. And that, that might not seem to come natural to them, but just give a little bit, and you'll see that come out of a woman. That's biblical femininity. That's the way that God has designed a woman to be a caregiver and a nurturer. And so that's part of God's calling there. Fifth, we know that motherhood is God's calling for women because motherhood is for teaching and modeling. We see the way God uses women in teaching and modeling. In 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, I am reminded, he says this to Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. And then in the next chapter, verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue growing in the gospel, in your relationship with Christ, knowing from who you learned it. Now, Paul has, have, has been of, of great influence in young Timothy's life. Paul has been a mentor. He has encouraged Timothy. But Timothy didn't learn the gospel from Paul. Timothy learned it from someone else. It says, verse 15, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Where did Timothy learn it? That faith that was in his grandmother and that is in his mother and is now in him. And how from childhood he had learned the holy scriptures that were able to make him strong in the Lord. He learned it from his mother. He learned it from his grandmother. He learned it through interaction with them. They, they intentionally taught the gospel. They intentionally modeled their faith. He was able to see their love for their Lord in simple activities around the house and the way that, the, that they dealt with him and that the way that they dealt with, with uh, his father. Timothy's father was likely an unbeliever. We're not for sure, but he, he quite likely could have been. And the way that his mother, who is a believer in the Lord, faithfully served and loved her non-Christian husband. Imagine what kind of a testimony that would be for a young man to see his, his mother love her husband with the gospel. Love her husband like that. Proverbs 31, most, most people, uh, Christian women are familiar with this. Uh, it says in verse 10, An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. And so Proverbs 31 kind of sets up on a pedestal this ideal woman. Well, well, where did this prototype come from? Well, it's in the Bible, so obviously it came from God. But who penned it? Who did God use to write it? The beginning of the proverb, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel. Where did King Lemuel get this? Where did he get this poetic, ideal woman from? An oracle that his mother taught him. And what did his mother teach him? Verse 2, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. And then she goes on. His mother taught him from a young boy, don't get hooked up with a loose and immoral woman. Hold out for a virtuous woman. Hold out for a godly woman. Son, here's the type of woman that you should seek. This type of woman will bring God's blessing in your life. 
And so his mother continues to teach him what he should look for in a spouse, what he should look for in a mate. Then in Proverbs 1 and 6, we're told not to forsake your mother's teaching. The young man who's reading the Proverbs, the young people who they're written for are told, remember your father's instruction, remember your mother's or your father's commandment, but also remember your mother's teaching. Forsake not your mother's teaching. This is why it is so important for women to be able, when they are become mothers, to be with their children. Because we see a pattern throughout Scripture of a mother being a model and a mother being a teacher. And it doesn't mean that you're evil if you don't have that opportunity. If you have that opportunity, grab it. And if you need to make changes to get that opportunity, make them. But no one else will love your child like you will. And no one else will care for your child's soul like you will. And no one else can teach your child like you can because everyone else goes home at the end of the day. And your child sees you. And so when they hear it from you, they know this is truth because mom teaches and mom tries to live according to her teaching. And I see mom blow it and mom owns up to it. I see dad blow it and dad owns up to it. And so I see the Christian life not just taught in theory, but lived in actuality on the weekends and on Sunday morning when we say we love Jesus. And so that's why we set the Lord's Day as special and we worship together as a family. And when we make purchases at the home and I find out that we have this because God has blessed us with it. And we don't have that that our neighbor has because we've made sacrifices in our family for the kingdom of God. And their children can see what is taught, modeled. And they can see it more with mom than with anyone else, perhaps. We see a strong pattern. Fathers are supposed to teach, but mothers instruct and model. And mothers are supposed to have that unique, caring, and nurturing opportunity to have the more thorough investment, perhaps, is a way to say it. That's why it's so important for moms to have that opportunity. And if they don't have it, they're not evil. But if they can get it, they should do what they can to take it. Then another thing, the last thing we see, motherhood is God's calling for women because motherhood is for the body of Christ. Motherhood is not just for your family. Marriage is not just for your life. But marriage and motherhood is for the body of Christ. Pastor John Piper says this, Marriage is for making children. Then he pauses. Disciples of Jesus. Here the focus shifts. The purpose of marriage is not merely to add more bodies to the planet. The point is to increase the number of followers of Jesus on the planet. The effect of saying it in this way is that couples who cannot make children because of issues of infertility can still aim to make children followers of Jesus. God's purpose in making marriage the place to have children was never merely to fill the earth with people, but to fill the earth with worshipers of the true God. In 1 Timothy, I believe it's chapter 5, Paul tells Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Then he gives him protocol how to interact with others in the church. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Here's a young pastor. There's people of all different ages in the church, and Paul encourages young Timothy to treat these older women in the church as he would a mother. In effect, he's saying... Allow them to mother you. Allow them to care for and nurture you and pour into your life. Allow them to be a mom to you. God has hardwired them to love and nurture and care. And let them serve you in that way. Where do we gain that inference from? Romans 16, 13. Paul says, greet Rufus. And back on that last slide, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. So he's a believer. Also, his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. 
Paul says, this guy is one of my brothers in Christ, and his mom is like a mom to me. Can you imagine being like a mom to the Apostle Paul? Being like a mom to the guy that God used to write two-thirds of the New Testament and spread the Christian faith throughout the majority of uh, Europe to get the ball rolling there, parts of Asia and Europe. Can you imagine that? And maybe if you're a mom in here, you know how one of your children has had a friend and they've been around the house and you've been able to pour into their life a little bit just because they've been around your, your child and been around the house. Well, that can happen and should happen in the body of Christ, even for those who do not have children. Imagine a married couple who has yet to have children or who is unable to have children or maybe has had children and now are empty nesters. Imagine the way that you can pour in to the lives of those who are younger than you, children compared to you at all various stages in the game of life. I know in, in one of the churches I was a part of, there is a couple who I would guess that they are probably in their mid to late 30s They've probably been married 10 plus years and they don't have any children. And I really couldn't tell you if it's because they're not able to have children or if they just have chosen not to have children yet. I don't know. I, I just, I don't. And I've never asked. Uh, but he owns, they own several nursing homes and he kind of oversees the care of those. And then she, I believe, works as a nurse. And they serve in the children's ministry at that church and she does a significant amount of the teaching, and he helps out, and he puts on costumes, and he dresses up like Bible characters and acts like a big goof to try and help teach kids the Bible. And then they've been blessed to have a nice home, and they say to the youth minister at that church, if we can ever open up our home and use it to serve the, the children in our church, the teenagers, we'd love to do that. We'd love this to be a safe place where the gospel of peace uh, is rooted. In, in kids' lives. So they serve young children and serve their moms and dads by virtue of helping in the children's ministry. They serve teenagers and serve their moms and dads by virtue of having their home be a safe place where, where children can interact about the gospel and enjoy life in a way that pleases God. And then also, uh, I, I've heard this through the grapevine, there's someone who does a, a, a campus ministry to college students. And they approach this, uh, this, this couple who does this college ministry. And they said, listen, we know that you have to fundraise for your salaries and for events. Uh, and we'd really like to help you as much as we can. Uh, so tell you what, um, you probably wouldn't have thought about this, but we put a lot of thought into it. And we thought this would be a good way. We know that you do lots of events. Uh, and that doing a lot of these outreach events and providing food for it, etc., that can get really expensive, and sometimes you can't even plan what you need. Here's what we want to do. We have to have catering and all that for all of our nursing homes, and we have food service we buy in bulk from companies. Let us provide the food for all your outreaches. That way, you don't have to come up with a certain amount of money. You just come up with a menu, and we'll, we'll take care of all the food for all the outreaches and everything. Now, you've got a married couple who in various ways and means are being moms and dad, mom and dad, and loving in various ways young children and their parents, adolescent children and their parents, and even college students, young adults, not children. But basically being moms and dads to people in all different stages of life in various ways by the way that they're serving so that Youths, adolescents, young adults, children are loved with the love of Jesus, are presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and are encouraged in the things of the Lord. That's, that's fatherhood and motherhood in its essence right there. That's, that's the very heart of it. And so motherhood is for the body of Christ because there's a lot of way to be a mother and to be loving and caring and to have those, those things at work without ever having your own child or ever changing a diaper or ever staying up all night with a bottle and whatever, without ever doing that. And that's a good thing and a God-glorifying thing as well. Now, 
Our question is, how do we respond to motherhood? It's Mother's Day. Good, good time to ask that question. How do we respond to motherhood? Do we look at marriage and motherhood biblically, or do we view it as the way culture, the way our society views it? Do we accept what images that our culture has projected for moms, or do we go to Scripture and see how the Bible projects God's design for motherhood? We should be championing, championing, championing those women who have taken hold of a biblical view of what it means to be a godly wife and have taken hold of a desire to be a godly mother and to give themselves to that. While our society often looks down on that and acts like those women are settling for less and they are not living up to their potential, we should champion those women and support them and say, you are living up to God's call. We support what you're doing. And this is not just about championing motherhood and supporting that in and of itself, but what it really is about, the overall arching idea, is that we are supporting going to Scripture and saying, what is God's design for life? Instead of blazing our own trail or just doing what society says, both for marriage, for motherhood, for fatherhood, for everything. What really this is all about is about saying, we who are Christians, Jesus died to purchase my forgiveness, my pardon of sin, and to bring me into relationship with God. I was purchased. I've been bought. I'm no longer my own. Since I belong to God, what does He want? What does He want for my relationships? What does He want for motherhood, for fatherhood, for career, for college. What does he want, and how can I live in a way that pleases him? And for those who have sought to be biblical moms, motherhood, embrace that, whether with kids or without. We applaud them because we believe they're wrestling with that, and that's the question that we all need to wrestle with. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.